0: G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. For the final episode in Series 3 and the last episode of 2015, we're packing it in. Startup Oz CEO Peter Brad will join us to discuss the federal government's recently released innovation plans. Then, Monica Wolf, CEO of Startup Muster, will discuss some of the more significant findings in this year's survey. Finally, we'll have a visit from Santa in the guise of the Australian Stock Exchange. Rory Cunningham of the ASX will talk about what it takes to take your startup to the public markets. We're going out with a bang on This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, and Getworm, the place where startups and early adopters converge. Last week, the federal government, led by Malcolm Turnbull, released a whole series of policies to promote innovation with a particular emphasis on the tech Startup sector. And with us to discuss the plans is Startup Oz CEO Peter Brad. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks for having me, Mark. And uh, the response here, with a couple of notable exceptions I, I won't name, but the response has been incredibly positive. People are
1: excited. What about you? Yes. Yeah, so Startup Oz, uh, I was in the lockup um, uh, down in Canberra last Monday. Uh, the Startup Pulse was really excited. I personally thought we'd probably get about five of our asks in and we ended up with about 15, um, which is amazing. And we got things in there that we didn't expect. Such in, as? Such as the visas that you, you, you've you spoken to me about, uh, such as the changes in director's liability, um, such as the changes to disclosure documents on the employee share option schemes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes to show that... Uh, I was on the show five months ago, right. and one of my objectives was to get a better relationship with government. And right. we've been working really closely with the new prime minister's office, the prime minister and cabinet task force, Christopher Pine's office, mm-hmm. and White Roy as well. Um, you know, Having sort of daily meetings, people calling on mobile all the time.
0: So was it literally sort of almost a zero to a one after the coup happened? We went from a government that wouldn't talk about innovation mm. to a government that only
1: talked about innovation. <laughs> Which is fine um, if you're in the innovation game. Yeah, well, it's really difficult for Startup Oz because we were, we were resourced for a Tony Abbott-led government mm-hmm. and we don't have the resources for a Malcolm Turnbull-led government. So we've been doubling down on trying to raise funding for our
0: not-for-profit so we can increase our resources. Oh, that's really interesting. You were you were basically geared up for a government that wasn't prepared to listen to you. And now you have a government that wants to engage you in every possible place. And you're like, wait, we can't handle all of this. Yes, yes. So exactly. it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. Yes. So we just, yeah, we're trying to get more corporate support. Okay. All right. So... The fifteen policies that you got in, which ones are the specific highlights for you, and what do you think they're going to mean to the startup community? Yeah,
1: so the number one request we had was for a national innovation agency, and we've got um, a couple of those. We've got a uh, prime minister chaired um, uh, committee inside prime cabinet, minister and right. cabinet, which is there's only like six of those. You know, it's a national security yeah. committee and alike. That, so that's that's amazing. Right. We've also and do, do we know who's on that yet? We know that he, he's on it.
0: Pine is on it and... I'm assuming it's all the cabinet ministers that are responsible um, for all of the different sections. All right, so the Minister for Science, the Assistant Minister for Science, uh, Assistant Minister for Innovation. So it hasn't been announced yet, so I don't, right. I'm don't. i not 100% sure
1: um, okay. in, in terms of who's on it, but right. I'm assuming it's, it'll be the, the cabinet ministers. So mm-hmm. uh, White Roy is not in cabinet, for example. It's Christopher Pine okay. uh, that's in cabinet. Yep. Uh, and uh, we've also got a... Um, uh, a section inside the Department of Industry that's been set up in specifically, and we've also got Bill um, Bill Ferris and um, the new Chief Scientist will be uh, co-chairs of Innovate and Science Australia, which is the new Innovation Board, which mm-hmm. will have a, a bigger remit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we almost got three sections with the Prime Minister chairing that, which is fabulous. So that was our number one ask. Uh, Second, uh, around visas, Mm -hmm. uh, we asked for, we pointed out that uh, Australia had to become an innovation hub. Um, 70% of the the talent in, the engineering talent in Silicon Valley is is foreign born. And if Australia wants to be creating world-leading products, we need world-leading talent here to do that.
0: It was funny because listening to the, particularly the journalists going, are they going to cap these visas? And the politicians are going, and you would cap talented people coming to the country because... It was a very weird frame. It was as if we've changed the game so completely because this isn't about limiting the talent that's coming into Australia. This is about making it as easy as possible, right? Mm. Now, part of what I heard was that if you come and you start a company and the company fails, then (laughs) you get kicked out again. How do you think that's actually going to work in practice?
1: Well, they don't have uh, a lot of the details there. So in the lockup, I asked the same questions. Right. And. there are a lot of things in the innovation statement that are still yet defined. So for example, with the taxation um write-off. So right. if you invest into a they haven't said it, whether it's a tech startup or it's all small business, uh you'll get a write-off of twenty percent of your investment, but there'll also be no capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. Labor put forward for that to be all small business under 25 employees and less than four hundred thousand dollars on the balance sheet. Right. Um and the UK is also all small business. Obviously, startup Oz represents tech startups, right. but um uh so that's something that's yet to be defined. The entrepreneurship visas are yet to be defined. Um the, uh, the, the disclosure document types with the employee share option schemes, employee share option plans, the disclosure documents you have to put out to ASIC
0: are yet to be defined. Do we know how much of this can be done sort of just by mandate versus how much of this actually has to go through parliament in terms of legislation?
1: Yeah, well, anything that involves legislation needs to go through parliament right. legislation. So, um, for example, the 20% write-off right. needs to go through parliament. Um, so we need to push that Push the government really hard on that. As a as a community, mm-hmm. we need to just like we have with employee option schemes, and like we need to rally together, have a co- coherent, consistent message, uh, specifically around uh, that twenty percent write off, because we don't want a funding gap. There are people here at Fishburners that are trying to raise money, and if they can't, investors get the write off in in Jan- July one. They're going to wait until that date. Right. Uh, so we need to push it as far as fast as possible. Grandfather through. it, yeah. I wouldn't say grandfathering. Um, I would because. If it 's not legislation, it's difficult to grandfather something because it 's not yet legislation right. um, once it's passed, they can enact it, so I think
0: that we just need to need to get it through legislation as quickly as possible. Okay. Well, and with the two major parties essentially trying to out-innovate each other in policy, at least at the moment, it looks like the road is relatively clear here. I mean, I think we're going to see, because we have the mid-year financial review coming up, mm-hmm. and I think yesterday the Treasurer announced that the money for the innovation spend, which is $1.1 billion, mm-hmm. is going to be taken out of other things. And so there will be, I think, some – well, there will be some people looking very askance at this. Because the money's going to be taken away from them. So yeah, we'll find it. out.
1: They haven't said much.
0: No, no, they've been playing their cards very close to the chest. All right, now what's what's going on with employee share ownership schemes? Because that we've tracked from bad policy now into good policy. So how good is the new policy? The new policy is, um, is
1: great. They're, they're, the issue... There are a couple of issues, but one of the issues is uh, the fact that if you issue, currently, if you issue um, employee shops or you issue any securities to more than 20 people, you have to disclose your financials to ASIC, mm-hmm. and then your financials are in the public realm, right. which is what we've had changed under this innovation statement. Um, the caps are, are quite low, and uh, people would like those caps uh, increased. There's also a requirement to have your shares for three years, mm-hmm. and we don't feel that if you're you you know, you're part of a successful company that... that, that um, you want to exit within 18 months or so because, say, I don't know, Facebook buys you. Mm-hmm. Why should you wait for three years to your options become... Um,
0: Normally, that's the term of the contract with the company rather yes. than the
1: term of the contract with the government. Mm-hmm. So that's They often have drag-alongs, though, and yeah. you know, tag-alongs and drag-alongs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so and we were, really, we we're really interested in that. They've they've announced um, uh, government as an exemplar as well, which is, which is really interesting. Uh, so that's where government uh, is, is trying to lead by example. And we saw that. In a very short period of time, it was basically eight weeks. Turnbull's been in for just over three months. Mm. About eight weeks, we got this entire innovation statement out. Yeah. Um, you know, under a person like Malcolm Turnbull that can actually talk about innovation because he's he's done it himself, and sometimes can't talk about anything. But <laughs> yes, um, uh, we've seen uh, the Prime Minister and Cabinet, we've seen, which is a, a, a department inside government, right. um, work in a way that they've never really worked before. Uh, they've worked amazing. We, we saw things like the policy hack, which got you know people from government together with business leaders, and they're all working in this new way of, of working, yeah. uh, which is great to see, and I'm hoping to see
0: it continue. All right, what's changed about directors' liability? That's another big change in the in the law. Yeah, so also- there's
1: there's been three changes. One is, um, at the moment, if you go bankrupt and you're a director, you're not allowed to be a director of another company for three years. Right. They've reduced that down to one year. Okay. Um, they've also allowed you to sort of enter into a Chapter 11-style agreement Um they haven't got the details of that either. So, but but it's, reorganization. Yeah. So if you're if you're uh, feeling like you're going to go insolvent, you can go to administrator, but right. you can still run the business under their plan, essentially, rather right. than currently you just hand it to an administrator who liquidates everything right. in a fire sale. Uh, and the third one is uh, you can have uh, clauses in your contract where if you get into financial trouble, you can cancel the contract. So it won't send you into uh, administration.
0: So these are, as someone who you know was dealing with this as a very heavyweight, last year with my own startup these are things that I think are going to be huge wins for the startups you know we we have had a culture of I think punishing failure in the startup community in Australia and these laws are sort of representative of that and this will hopefully then make that failure and startups most startups will fail we all we all face that reality but it makes that failure I guess less of a punishment
1: yeah, absolutely. That's really important. It sort of goes hand in hand with our request to get more angel investors involved in businesses. Mm-hmm. And when you invest, you know, a big chunk of money, for, for depending on how wealthy you are, you know, say 50000 or or 100000 into a startup, you probably do want to seat on the board so right. you can have a say. Um, but currently being a director of a startup, as you said, is, is very risky. Um, so these laws were a step towards changing the culture of Australia. Yeah and
0: making it more more like the culture in other countries. Okay, so 5 months ago you sat right where you're sitting now and you said I'll be out of this job in 6 months and I did not believe you. And when we did the pre-briefing for this interview you said, "Oh yeah, that's right. And I'm stepping down <laughs> after 6 months." So, why and how and what
1: happens next? Yeah, great. So, um, yeah, we had a, I had other journalists that said, "What can you achieve in 6 months?" And it's good to show, you know, what what you can achieve um, as an entrepreneur. Um, I created Fishburners part time uh, as a volunteer, mm. and you know it's it's huge now. Uh, so the right people can can do a lot. Uh, it's all about rallying other people around you mm-hmm. as well. So you know this isn't all about me. It's you know success has many fathers. Um, I wanted to do the role to kickstart Startup Oz. We weren't getting very far with the old Prime Minister, mm. um, and we weren't. Uh, we needed we needed more of a change. And for me personally, because I created Fishburners, I was keeping all these amazing entrepreneurs here in Australia. Right. I almost started to feel guilty that they were here and not in other countries getting better support. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to do it. Um, I only wanted to do it for six months because I felt I could get the change and then with it, with a higher profile startup, we could have a full-time CEO because I was only part-time. Mm. So I could raise the funding, get the better relationships with the government but also within the ecosystem to increase the profile, have the funding for another CEO that would like to stay for you know a three-year period. To to come in and, and run the organisation, someone with a bit a bit more patience than myself, who likes
0: to to achieve a lot, and and who wants to have a lot of interesting conversations about innovation with the prime minister. Well, Pete, job well done on behalf of the startup community. Let me thank you and thank you for being on this episode of this week in Startups Australia. Thanks, for having me, Mark. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I just want to have a few really kind of final words about Twista Series 3 sponsors Braintree. These, these folks make code for easy online payments. Now, developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever's next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world. That makes your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code. Don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com twista. At the start of this year... It was episode zero of Twista Series 2. Mari Herbst joined us to discuss the findings of the 2014 Startup Muster. Now, Startup Muster is this in-depth survey of the startup community throughout Australia. Its findings can influence policy. They can also help the community to understand its overall health so, to discuss the findings of the 2015 Startup Muster, we're speaking with Monica Wolf, the new CEO of the new startup, Startup Muster. Monica, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, before we actually dive in a little bit, there's a new startup called Startup Muster. Well, what are you guys <laughs> doing?
2: So I've been involved with Startup Master since the beginning. So I co-founded it with Murray um, back in 2013, but he was always more of the figurehead poster boy. Um, and now because of the release of the 2015 report, as well as what we'll be doing next year, um, which will be some amazing things that I can't go into too much detail about, um, we really realized that you know we needed a full-time CEO, someone to really guide the ship and And steer it in the right direction. So that's how I've now stepped up for that role.
0: Well, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so what are some of the big highlights from the 2015 report?
2: So one of the big ones that stuck out to me, which also was one that stuck out to Maori to do with the one beforehand, was to do with female founders. Right. And so in this year, we saw that of the founders in 2014, 24% 24% were females mm-hmm. and the year before that in 2013 those founders were 19%. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing this um, positive tra- trajectory of females entering the entrepreneur space which as a female founder I'm very pleased to see that and it still is nowhere near where it should be but the fact that you know it is happening and there are different things that might be leading to this happening is um, is what's going on and some of those include... There's, you know, in the survey we asked reasons for pursuing a startup Mm -hmm. and one of the big ones was um, inspiration from an actual other startup or from engaging with startups as well as, um, you know, meetup groups and things like that. So potentially what, you know, with other female founders kind of getting out there, getting their voice out there, things like Springboard and the various Google for female entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's... It's getting a bit more traction and and people are seeing it as a real option.
0: That's brilliant. Now, are we seeing overall also more startups happening now?
2: Yes, we are. So um, the data showed that of the founders within this data set, that 50% of them had never started a startup before. Mm -hmm. And so that is direct growth. Mm. Also, the most common reason for pursuing a startup was was dissatisfaction with their job, (laughs) which rated 33%. But then uh, right under that was um, people doing a hobby and then that actually turning into a viable business.
0: Wow. So this idea that you could actually be pursuing something you love and then at a certain point go, okay, I don't want to love this anymore. I want to make a business out of it. Exactly.
2: (laughs) The dream, right? Which is, well... Do what you love.
0: Yeah, except when you turn it into a business, you don't love it as much. (laughs) And this is always... uh, This is always a bit of the trade-off there. I mean, I because I've I've done this myself, and and I mean it, it is good to, though because I I went exactly through that process. The lovely hobby. Let me turn it into a business. Okay, so what about the eternal war between Melbourne and Sydney? How are the how are the cities doing in relative senses?
2: Yeah, so I mean, New South Wales and Sydney are still coming out as being the majority holder. Um, and Is that, it
0: still sort of two-thirds, one-third? Or? Yeah,
2: so um, Melbourne, uh, Sydney was 46.5% and Melbourne was uh, about 18%. Um, yeah, 18%. And, you know, it has a lot to do with the support ecosystems that are around the different states. New mm-hmm. South Wales also contributes 31% to GDP, mm. has the largest population. But, you know, with this kind of state-on-state war, if anything, it should you know drives a bit of competitiveness and so for next year i think we've got quite a few um accelerator programs that are starting up in melbourne yes. uh sid start has now become StartCon or something like that and is moving to melbourne yes. so um it'll be interesting to <laughs> <Traitors>. see
0: <laughs> it'll be
2: interesting to see what happens um
0: now, have Brisbane and Perth started to get a look in on this?
2: Yeah, they really have. Um, I think that uh, Queensland especially has really upped their game quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And through things like River City Labs, mm-hmm. D also has their, their connection with River City Labs. They've been on the show. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, Startup start up Weekend did a bunch of things up in Brisbane and Gold Coast throughout the year as well mm-hmm. to do with health and then another one to do with tourism. Um, they are definitely getting a look in uh, I mean, uh WA they just launched their startup WA. Right. So I think everyone's really getting into the spirit and starting to take startups really seriously.
0: Okay, what about how they're progressing in terms of being able to find funding and things like that?
2: So the the survey showed that one third of startups actually received funding in two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm. So two thirds remain bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing that about sixty percent are raising via private capital, right. and but there was an increase in in government grants. So it, yeah, they got twenty seven percent in two thousand in the two thousand fifteen round compared to seventeen percent in the two thousand fourteen round. Yeah, so.
0: And that's and that's after commercialization Australia got killed as well so where is this money coming from do we
2: know maybe maybe the startups are becoming more savvy mm-hmm. um, you know we've got uh Queensland has um, Queensland Advance, I think it is. Uh, right. That has you know, really put about 150 million in to do with startups and research and innovation. We also now have the innovation statement that came out, you know, on the 10th, which will ultimately impact what things are going to be pursued and how they're going to be pursued next year mm-hmm. and for the s- subsequent like three or four years. So.
0: Okay, so what's the um, profile of a founder now? Is it starting to change a little bit?
2: Right now, we're still, from from looking at the data that we received with Startup Master, it is still, um, you know, more more towards the male side. I don't mm-hmm. think you could ever really class a typical founder. But if you want to talk about the majority of what we're seeing, it is still um, predominantly male, usually between the ages of 30, 35.
0: Okay, so a little older than most people feel.
2: Yeah, right. Um, uh, about eighty-two percent of the founders had a tertiary education. Forty-one mm-hmm. percent was postgraduate.
0: Really? Yeah. So, masters or PhD or yeah,
2: wow. anything above undergraduate. Okay. Pretty much. Do we
0: know what the breakdown is between masters and PhDs there?
2: We can look it up.
0: Yeah, that, okay. Yeah. That's just,
2: yeah, it's... that would be interesting for what's what's now come out with all the folks on research and development. Yes, and. Twenty-three percent of our startups do have employees that undertake, or twenty-three percent of our startups have um, uh, do research and development locally. Right. And then of those that are outsourcing, ten percent of the startups that are outsourcing things are outsourcing to do with research and development. So yeah. it's a it's a really interesting space that we should be okay. So let, me, in let on. me ask,
0: and it's okay if you need to sort of take a look around. What percentage mm-hmm. of these startups are selling internationally now?
2: Okay, so 38% have... Ooh, you've got these numbers. I just
0: saw your eyes go. You got the, yeah. <laughs> because it was
2: one that really spoke to me. So right. it's like 43% of start- of startups have revenue. Right. Of those, 38 have export revenue. That's brilliant. It is brilliant. Um, the proportion of their revenue sales compared to their local sales, the majority are still within the 1% to 20% range. Mm-hmm. So potentially... We could see an increase in a those that are exporting and and those that are exporting their potential their proportion of export sales to local sales, but um you know it's good that we're we've got a global mindset right,
0: right, which was something that we had been wanting, and you know, having been in New Zealand this year where they have to have a global mindset because yeah. there's just not enough people to sell to here in Australia, you're kind of on that line where you <laughs> could just sell locally. But in fact, if you really want, if you want to be an Atlassian, for example, you have mm. to be global. All right. What are the kinds of startups that we're seeing? If you break them down into categories, how did they break down?
2: So we had we captured industries and we captured themes and we also captured the revenue gen, uh, forms of revenue that they were generating. Mm. So subscription based was um, the biggest revenue. So is that SaaS sort of sorts of, sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. So. Um... So thirty five percent have a re- uh, subscription revenue model, mm-hmm. and then when we look at the industries and the themes, what we're seeing is that you know twenty nine percent of startups have some form of B two right. B, uh, twenty eight or twenty nine percent actually are some form of SaaS as well. Yeah, and then the the areas that we're we're seeing you know twelve percent are doing with big data, twelve percent also doing with internet of, Internet of Things, twelve no. percent um, to do with health and. Mm-hmm. You know, fintech is at 11% at the moment, but, you know, with all the developments that that's we're seeing, I right. know, right? I, that's the thing I'm interested in looking at for next year is how, how that's going to change. And okay,
0: then,
2: yeah. Yeah, so marketplace is also a really big um, big opportunity. We've got
0: 18%. Okay, so but it's not all sort of weighted. I mean, SaaS is doing well, but that makes sense, but it's not all sort of lumpy yet. It's, uh, there's an actual really interesting distribution of different kinds of areas. Yeah.
2: It really screams to me that everyone's giving it a go, and they're giving it a go in different areas and different industries.
0: Okay, when will you start the 2016 survey?
2: Early next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't give the exact date. Um, That's fine. Because no, it's a kind of... of, yeah, so we're, we've always kind of started the round in Q1. You know, we did that this year, we did it the year before, so it will be around that same time, because a lot of the questions that we ask are about the previous year or things like that. Um, But exactly what we're doing and how we're going to do it, I can't tell you too much more about that. All right.
0: (laughs) Well, when... You're ready to launch. I'll have you come back on so you can tell our listeners because our listeners are all the startup folks and I want them to make sure they get their data in. Monica, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Hi, this is Mark Pesci. We've had an amazing series and an amazing 2015 on This Week in Startups Australia, and we're already deep into planning the next series, Series 4. It will run 20 episodes. It'll probably start around the 3rd or 4th of February, and it will run basically through the entire year. And at this point, we're looking for sponsors who want to help us, sponsoring single episodes, sponsoring groups of episodes, sponsoring an entire series. If you're interested, if you want to reach the thousands of entrepreneurs that we talk to with every episode on This Week in Startups Australia, please drop me an email at mpesce at gmail.com. Thank you. (laughs) It's the dream of every tech entrepreneur to achieve the biggest possible exit through an initial public offering. But the path from incorporation to an IPO, it is not easy, and very few companies actually make it all the way. Now, although the first thought for many entrepreneurs is toward a market listing in New York, our own ASX, it should be getting a look in. Australia has a very rich pool of investment, and that's, of course, thanks to superannuation and all the other capital market formation that we've had here. And because of all of this, and because of some unique peculiarities we'll get to in just a minute, the ASX punches well above its own weight in world capital markets. So to talk about that journey for the entrepreneur from the perspective of the exchange, we're speaking with business development manager for listings at the Australian Stock Exchange, Rory Cunningham. Rory, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia.
3: Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: So one of the things that's a little bit different about the ASX is the scale of the kind of offering that you might make as a startup. So when we think of a startup doing an offering on the New York Stock Exchange or on the Nasdaq, you're talking about multi-billion-dollar sort of Google, Facebooky kinds of deals. What are we yes. talking about in the ASX?
3: Yeah, well, our our market structure over here is quite interesting. Um, you touched on a few points there, being, you know, we are in an incredibly uh, fortunate position, I believe, in that we have access to a huge pool of capital, both domestic pool but also an international pool, and about 45% of all capital held on ASX is from international investors. And just
0: the reason that happens is because the ASX is trusted. We aren't seen as a fly-by-note exchange, right?
3: That's right. I mean, investors, whether they're domestic or international, can access, obviously, you know, some of the biggest banks in the world, Everyone knows we have the biggest miners in the world in Australia. But we also have quite a a deep market in that we're a market really for large caps, mid caps and small caps. So as you you mentioned before, you know, when you think of a listing on NASDAQ or, or New York Stock Exchange, typically they are multi-multi-billion dollar listings and typically are exits right. by the original founders or, or the VCs that have been backing those companies. In Australia, though, we're a little bit different. I mean, if you think about our history of uh, the last 100 years where there's been risk capital... Uh, available for junior mining companies, mm-hmm. junior mining explorers. So that would have been like the Lane
0: Hancocks and folks like that back in the day.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, BHP at one point would have been right. a, a, a junior mining explorer. That We've got a, a market that is available not only for those large cap companies, like the big banks that we have, mm. but also mid caps and those small caps. So companies that might say traditionally think of doing Perhaps a Series B equivalent round, so somewhere between sort
0: of three and ten million dollars.
3: Yeah, yeah, three and ten. We we do see IPOs for three and ten million dollars in terms of the capital that's being raised. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's probably ten ten million dollars in terms of capital raising is probably a good rule of thumb. It can go either either side of that, but accessing. Public capital markets in Australia
0: for those type of capital raisings is something that we commonly see over here, and it's something you wouldn't actually because Goldman Sachs would just eat that as a canopy, right? That's the thing. <laughs> if you tried to do it in New York with you know the big exchanges and the big merchant bankers, they would laugh at you if you said, "Oh, we want to raise ten million dollars." They say, "Okay, we'll write you a check."
3: Yeah, I mean, if we do have, you know, like we're talking about here, I suppose we do have quite significantly different capital markets and the structure of our market is different in terms of it, there is a vibrant market for those smaller mid-cups. And I think that does go back to our history of having, you know, funding junior mining explorers. Um, you know, a, a great example is probably Catapult. Uh, Catapult, you know, had revenue when they listed of about $9.4 million and they raised $12 million for a market cap of sixty six million. And they the did this what, about a year ago? Yeah, so December two thousand and fourteen. So almost almost twelve months ago. And and that, like you say, you would never do something like that on Nasdaq or New York Stock Exchange, but we do have markets and and listing rules that are tailored to those types of listings
0: okay so how do i if i'm an entrepreneur and i'm sitting here in the do i do a series b or do i do a listing moment how do i guide myself through that decision because this is a decision that wouldn't be on the table say for an american technology startup but is on the table for mm. an australian technology startup
3: yeah and and interestingly we've actually seen some u.s companies come to if US companies and Singaporean companies come to the Australian market because they can it, get capital here in order to access capital and make those those decisions. So in terms of making those decisions, I mean really as a, as a founder uh, working with your advisors you should be looking at trying to make the most objective based decision that you can about the capital that you're that you're seeking. So I suppose firstly what's the cost of that capital? Mm-hmm. Um, costs in terms of hard costs, such as fees that yeah. you incur, but also around valuation. Um, that's obviously an important consideration for any capital raise. Uh, when it comes to the public markets, I mean, there are some, obviously, some advantages of being a publicly listed company. We've talked about access to capital. There's also the secondary market for your shares. So that's the continuous trading. Mm-hmm. You get a higher public profile. You'll have institutional investment. Um the valuation of your company should also be, arguably, fairer because mm. you have a full market appraising right. what it believes is is the fair value of your which, company, which of course but works both can, ways. <laughs> we can debate that probably for an hour, so that's we might leave that one.
0: Well, but and, uh, <clears throat> when you showed me before we went on the air, you know what Catapult had listed listed at was sixty six million, and and I know a deer, and I thought the company was worth a lot more than that. Of course, sure. now. As of the recording of this, which is the end of November, the company's worth three times that. So it's yes. worth around $200 million, which seems to be much fairer. So it actually does seem as though the market is now factoring in what the real value of the business is. Sure. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's the
3: beauty of, of any market really and of our market here is that there are so many investors in the market and all different types of investors with different risk profiles that are prepared to... Uh, you know, invest in in companies such as Catapult, or there's also plenty of investors that want to invest in a Commonwealth Bank or a National right. Australia. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so <laughs> I'm I'm making the decision with my advisors that in fact I can get the best price for my shares for my capital in the ASX. Mm-hmm. What do I need to start to do?
3: Yeah. So, in in any IPO you're going to need a core advisory team. So you're going to need your investment bank or your broker. Mm-hmm. You're going to need your accountant and you're going to need your lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, those three play a really critical role in, in guiding uh, the path and success of your IPO. Am
0: I going to have to reorganize my corporation in any way to handle an IPO versus the yeah. standard sort of contract yeah. for that?
3: Yeah, so it's a it's really important consideration uh, both... In terms of the, having the right structure for an IPO, and and I'll talk about that in a se- in a mm. second, but also what are your ongoing obligations as a listed company? Because it the obligations of being a listed com- company are, to be honest, they are quite onerous, and there's reasons for that. It's because it improves the uh, I suppose the trust that the transparency, in the transparency in the market, right. um, and investor trust and transparency is an extremely important factor of the market. So just stepping back a bit. So in, in an IPO, a company is going to have to be uh, a, a public company mm-hmm. according to the Corporations Act, mm-hmm. and it will be listed on ASX. So there's a company structure around that that needs to uh, take place. Typically, a company, when they're starting off in this process, might start out as a proprietary limited company, but they'll work with their, their lawyers and their accountants to get that switched over into a, a public company. The other thing uh, that will need to be put in place is a board of directors that sits on top of the, the public company uh, structure.
0: And and, it's, and those directors are generally sort of different from the directors who might have been on the board while the startup was taking off, right? Because there's a different set of skills.
3: Yeah, I, I, that's that's fair. I, I think what you might find is, is an, a founder, original founder of the company might take a director position. Mm-hmm. It would actually be kind of... Uh, Rare that that didn't happen, Mm -hmm. but there'll be other directors that probably have experience both in a public company uh, market structure. So, they're existing directors of ASX-listed companies. Um, They'll have experience on other boards, but also they'll have experience or skills that might apply specifically to the industry in which you operate in. You're listening to this week in
0: Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and a few final words about Twister Series 3 sponsors Get Worm. Startups they need to attract early adopters before they reach out to a larger crowd. How do they do that? Well, Getworm is the place where startups and early adopters converge. It's a platform where startups can incentivize early adoption through the creation of perks. Those are rewards for being part of that all-important first group of users. If, like me, you're the kind of person who likes to try new things, then sign up as an early adopter on Getworm and maintain your leading-edge cred while getting some great perks from the latest startups the early bird gets the worm at getworm.com and we're back talking to rory cunningham about what it takes to list your startup on the asx and we were just talking about the needs for directors and the directors being more important going forward and of course the, the internal changes that a company has to go through in order to be a public company, the transparency, the additional recording, the quote-unquote onerous, as you, as you called it, reason, uh, reasons, that essentially create the level of trust that you need. And, then, and of course, if you don't have that trust, you're not going to get foreign investors, for one thing. I mean, you take a look at a lot of foreign stock markets that don't have the same recording reporting yes, requirements yeah. and there's a lot of fraud on those markets and all sorts of things so it's the price you pay for getting access to more to more capital
3: that's exactly right. I mean, investor transparency uh, and trust is uh, is paramount to any successful market. and And the, the the great thing I believe about ASX and our market here is we have we have one board, we have one set of listing rules, mm-hmm. and those listing rules are well understood by domestic investors, but also international investors. So they, whether you're, uh, at, you know, Commonwealth Bank, the you know, largest listed company on ASX, or you're a, a junior small micro cap company, you have one set of listing rules that you abide by.
0: Okay. So I've, I've figured out what I need to do. What are the actual steps that I'm now going through? What is the trigger for an IPO? I guess the, what's the first document that needs to get filed? How, what is this actual process in terms of steps?
3: Yeah. So working with your advisor, you, you're looking to do a, a number of things. First of all, Uh, We discussed getting in place the right structure. So you'll have to convert over to a public company structure. Mm -hmm. We also discussed getting in place a board of directors, Mm Uh, that are perhaps understand the listing rule environment. Of course, then uh, still internally, you might need to consider uh, management changes. So appointing a CFO, for example, oh, that yeah. is, is that understands uh, the operations of a, a publicly listed company yeah. now on ASX. So that no one lands up
0: in jail because <laughs> things weren't done right, yeah. Uh,
3: so those types of, those three rule, rule changes will, will need to happen. Then um, your advisory Team forms what we call a due diligence committee. Mm-hmm. And that due diligence committee is responsible for producing uh, the prospectus document, mm-hmm. which is used in marketing your IPO uh, to investors.
0: And a prospectus document is quite a schizophrenic document because half of it <laughs> is about how great this investment is, and then the other half is about how dangerous this investment is, right? And that those are sort of, well, the second half is required by law and the first half is required to move the shares.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but I think also the uh, disclosing of a risk in investment is... Uh, again, goes to that uh, ability of, of building transparency and trust mm-hmm. with investors. Um, first of all, the prospectus document uh, is a Corporations Act requirement. So mm-hmm. when, any, when a company is looking to raise capital from from uh, retail investors, they'll, they'll need to produce a, a prospectus. And that really is so that investors can determine the rights and liabilities attaching to the shares that are offered, and as well as the assets, liabilities, and financial position and performance of the company. Um, and like you say, not only is it talking to what are the uh, potential benefits of of investing in X Y Z company, mm-hmm. but also the risk. And I always point to the example of Zero, uh, uh, the the accounting software platform. And when they originally, and I'll just throw you know a bit of a, a, a bone here to our colleagues in New Zealand and uh, the New Zealand Stock Exchange when Xero uh, zero listed on on that exchange if you read through the prospectus and the chairman's letter the chairman in his letter to the to the public said that zero is an early stage business similar to a venture capital opportunity and is therefore a high risk investment and uh, so not only you know if you read through that prospectus were the benefits clearly you know mm-hmm. visible to investors but also the risks that they were potentially exposing themselves to
0: and this is I guess if you were a a venture capitalist you would know this and you wouldn't have to necessarily have it spelled out although generally in a prospectus that goes to a VC for a formal deal these things are spelled out but when you're actually talking to retail investors you have to be extremely explicit about all of the risks you know if this doesn't happen if this contract doesn't happen if these parameters aren't met then this will be the impacts on the business you really have to think about the forward plan of the business against that
3: yeah, and it's it's it is, you know that is a tough thing to do. Um, to be honest, when you when you're talking about any early stage uh, business, uh, you know, knowing or being able to disclose what's going to happen mm. in in six months or twelve months might be actually un. Unknown to the business and um, and and those are those are some of the the benefits, but also risks that come with any early stage investment opportunity. one of the the things that is often complicated with producing a prospectus like document is around financials mm-hmm. and I know with earlier stage businesses uh, there 's always a discussion around whether they should put forecasts in. Now, forecasts, (laughs) forecast financials don't have to be in a prospectus.
0: And And yet they will always end up in the
3: prospectus. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. If you look at uh, a lot of the earlier stage opportunities, I Mm. mean, there's a real emphasis from uh, the regulator on... Uh, forecast financials only being in a prospectus if there's a reasonable basis for them being in there. Oh, well, that would kill most of those then, yeah. And it's and it's something that, you know, the the directors of the the company have to sign off on on the prospectus before it can officially be lodged with ASIC. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's an extremely important consideration and again, if there's a reasonable basis then uh again your your accountant or your you know, your accountant uh, isn't going to sign off as well on any forecast that, that, that he or she right. isn't, isn't happy with. So if they
0: aren't really signed contracts, yeah. they're probably not going to end up in a forecast. Okay, all right, so you've got the prospectus, you've filed the prospectus with ASIC. Mm. Now what, there's a period of time between the filing of that prospectus and the actual the shares being listed on the market.
3: Yeah, that's right. So in, uh, in Australia, the way it operates is you lodge your prospectus with ASIC. Mm. Now typically what you'll do at the same time is lodge a listing application along with all the supporting documentation such as your prospectus to ASX. Mm-hmm. Now, the ASIC uh, piece of the equation first. ASIC have an exposure period of seven days. That means that if they do not come back to you within seven days with any comments uh, or uh, questions around your prospectus, then you know the, the uh, company and its advisors can consider that prospectus live okay. and can start to raise capital. If there are questions, then there'll be an exposure period of a further seven days. So really, uh, all in all, you can consider seven so seven very, days very to quick. fourteen. It is. I, I personally think it's it's quite quick, and mm-hmm. and you know if you're working with the right advisors that have been through that the process a number of times, then it should really only be seven seven days, mm-hmm. perhaps fourteen, but you know you can say two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and then once it's been approved by ASIC, then the companies can start to raise raise capital. Typically what that looks like, it could be you know a four to six week process for, for raising the capital. It just varies by... So this is
0: the roadshow period is what we call that. Yeah, right? yeah. Where you correct. have meetings with merchant bankers and... and...
3: Yeah, so we're talking about literally promoting promoting the deal now. Mm. Actually just probably just stepping back a little bit. One of the the great things about our market here as well is the fact that you can uh, do a roadshow to institutional investors mm. before you've actually lodged your prospectus with ASIC. That's a re- and that's Oh re- really? Yeah, well, so
0: what what, what- how do you get the leeway to be able to do that i mean and how do the institutional investors kind of trust you if you haven't filed yet
3: yeah so typically there might be uh what we call a pathfinder prospectus available or 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 a, a lot a draft okay. a draft prospectus right. is the best way to gotcha. consider it and this is the company and and the brokers that they're working with going to the institutional investors to to really uh test the offer just so putting like. it on the radar for
0: them yeah exactly
3: okay. and and seeing who might be who who who's interested in, in okay. investing um, then what happens is once the prospectus is ready now you're available to 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 promote to retail investors mm-hmm. as well and in australia we have uh, over 6 million uh, australian Retail investors have some form of direct ownership in shares, yeah. so there is actually Again, thank you,
0: Paul Keating. <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> yeah, there is actually in Australia, and it, quite unique to Australia, I think, that there is a huge retail investor, mm-hmm. um, you know, market out there to to raise capital from. Obviously, with self-managed super funds as well. I mean, they now control over five hundred billion dollars of funds under yeah. management. So they're they're a huge uh, segment unto themselves. Yeah. Where you know you, you you do need to work with with your work with your brokers and your advisors to to actively promote to that market.
0: Okay, so we've gone all this, we've got to the market, we have our champagne popping, yay, we've made our money. <laughs> where do you see this going now that we're really having a uh, not even just a renaissance, but the the birth of a whole. Tech startup sector in in you know much bigger way over the last two or three years than we had ever seen. Yeah, Are we do you expect that we're going to start to see a lot more tech startups turn to the ASX for that sort of Series B ish money? Are we starting to see that change?
3: I I think so. I think it will be. Uh, you know. Uh, let me put this another way. If you go to if you go to the the, the mining sector, mm. any junior mining explorer knows how to raise capital from the public. Right? right. That's just they've they've been doing it for the last one hundred years. Right. They know and there will be people in the than, company
0: who have done it with other companies. Correct. and Yeah.
3: And there's a very you know a, obviously that that market um, that sector is in a recession at the moment. But when things are are operating well and and you know metal prices are, are higher yeah. and uh, that's a a fantastic sector in terms of capital raising and listing. I think there's no reason why it shouldn't be the same for tech companies in Australia. Um, I think that if they're of the right size, the right experience um, and uh, the, the right type of business, then, then absolutely doing a, a raising capital from the public and listing on the stock exchange should be a natural part of any decision-making process when you're looking at where you're going to get funding from I think, you know, given you, you, you do all those things and you, you've, you are of the right size and you understand your ongoing obligations, then, then why shouldn't it be a, a consideration? Rory,
0: thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me. This has been a big year, a huge year. As Peter Brad points out, we've gone from a nation that didn't have a place for innovation to a nation which is all about innovation all the time. We have to hope that innovation is not just flavor of the month. Here today, gone tomorrow. But even if that's the case, Monica Wolf and the Startup Muster show us that we are moving in the right direction. The community is getting bigger, it's getting smarter, it's getting stronger. And interestingly... On this podcast, in this series, we've managed to make sure that 25% of our guests have been women. That means we are keeping average with the rest of the community. We're doing better than we had in Series 1 and Series 2. We need to do better. We will do better in Series 4. You have my promise. And, of course, we're now seeing an explosion in different ways that we can fund startups in Australia. Rory Cunningham explained that the path to a public offering on the ASX for a mid-range company, just raising maybe ten or twenty million dollars, it's actually a much more viable option than most startups imagine. Now, overnight on Friday, Atlassian, the startup of all tech startups in Australia, it went public on the Nasdaq. It soared thirty two percent on its debut it's worth around eight billion dollars that is a huge vote of confidence in australia's startup community and it is a perfect end to a huge year what i think will be seen in history as the pivotal year in australian startups if you want to learn more about our guests drop by our Tumblr at twistartups.tumblr.com. They have some behind-the-scenes photos on there. You'll also find a presentation that Rory Cunningham gave us, which is a step-by-step explanation of what you need to think about if you're thinking about going public on the ASX. So you can check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And for a final time, huge thanks To Series 3 sponsors, Braintree and Get Worm, their support has made this podcast possible. Guys, thank you so much for this. Thanks to Felix Gormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work, and I do mean hard work, creating a podcast that is consistently wonderful to listen to. Thanks to Peter Brad, Monica Wolfe, and Rory Cunningham for taking the time to come on our show. We will be back in February with Series 4. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.